0: Good morning again. How is everybody? Good. That's a good response. Good. Hey, before we dive into uh, the word this morning, um, I want you to know if if you might not be aware, if you are, then you know it's coming. But uh, I uh, became a father on Tuesday for the first time. Yeah, that's my baby boy. That shepherd Christopher Smith right there. He's a supermodel. And uh, he's really good looking. He gets that from his mom. Uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, th- this is the coolest thing. I'm not going to talk too much about him because then I'll cry and it'll be bad. But, uh, but I just wanted to get that uh, uh, up there to get you guys all on my side. And then we're going to dive into the word together, okay? And so let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to move. And then, uh, and then we will dive in. Father, it is an incredible privilege to know you. To experience your provision, to experience your truth. Father, I pray that you would allow us to realize that, that you would reveal that to us. That those of us who sit in this room are a privileged people because we get to experience you. I pray that you would teach us this morning not to take that privilege lightly, but to use it correctly for the benefit of us, the world, and for your glory. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are in the middle of our series on 1 Corinthians, and we are in 1 Corinthians 10. So if you have a Bible um, or a phone or whatever, any way to access the Word of God, then you can turn to uh, or slide to chapter 10. Of First Corinthians, and if you don't have a Bible or a phone app, then there is a Bible on the back of the pew in front of you, there should be. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, I believe that is our gift to you. I'll go ahead and on my authority, we'll give it to you. I'll pay for it later. So we're going to be in chapter 10, but in order to get some context, I want to read to you a, a text that we read last week together. Um, but uh, it's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to to listen to this, because the argument that Paul is making, though it's divided by a chapter number that was added years later, it is in in constant flow with the end of chapter 9. And so the end of chapter 9 goes a little bit like this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. This is Paul. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. The Greek is I make my body my slave and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should not be disqualified. It's an interesting question to me or an interesting statement that Paul makes about his own disqualification, or the possibility of his own disqualification? Why does Paul have to concern himself with being disqualified? Why would the apostle and the greatest missionary in history be concerned with himself about something like disqualification? It's a crazy question in my mind for Paul to ask of himself. Here's why I think, because Paul knows, and if you've got notes and you've got a pen, I would write this down because this is kind of the title of today's talk. Paul knows that though faithfulness is of utmost importance, idolatry is easy. Paul knows that though faithfulness is of utmost importance, idolatry is is easy. And I'm going to go ahead and define idolatry uh, for us because most of the definitions you have in your head are correct, but they're not, um, most of them are probably not full or complete. And so I want to, to give a more general um, uh, definition of idolatry for, for our case or uh, our sake this morning. And I'm going to say idolatry equals failure to be faithful, Idolatry equals failure to be faithful. And so faithfulness is of utmost importance, but idolatry is easy. And remember the context that we're in, in 1 Corinthians. In the past few chapters, Paul has been talking about uh, using Christian freedom correctly. He keeps saying, I am free in Christ, but here's how I use that in a beneficial way. All things are lawful for me, but not all things build one another up. And so we're in this context of using Christian freedom that we have in Christ, but using it correctly. And Paul's concern for himself and the people he's writing to and to us this morning is over-presumption or overconfidence, or complacency in that freedom. So to the possibly complacent Christian and to himself and to us this morning, Paul warns that though faithfulness is of utmost importance, idolatry is easy. And like a good historian, Paul is going to look back at history to learn lessons so that we do not repeat the mistakes of others. And so starting in chapter 10, he tells the story of the Israelites. And so starting in verse 1, he writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud." And so what uh, Paul is, is setting up here is an example of the Israelites as the people of God, as the people who were privileged to have the provision and the experience of knowing God and being identified as his people. And notice that he says all. He says it five times. And, and in the Greek, when, when, when I read the word all, it means all. And so it, it's, it's uh, fathers were all under the cloud. That is that they were all um, under this pillar of cloud that God led the people through the red sea uh, through out of the uh, uh, captivity in Egypt. Um, if, if you don't know the story, he he's got this cloud um, by day and a pillar of fire by night, and it's representative of God's presence leading the Israelite people out of captivity in Egypt, and they were all blessed to experience that and to be led out of Egypt by that cloud and they all passed through the sea the sea was divided for them in a miraculous way and they they passed through it out of captivity from egypt and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And, and Paul right now is kind of giving an allusion to us uh, Christians reading because we know baptism. We, we, we know When we were baptized, we were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and, and more specifically, we were baptized into Christ. Meaning that we give, we voluntarily give our lives to Jesus. And baptism is our symbol of that. that the old us is gone and the new us is here. And the new us is going to promised to follow Jesus for the rest of our lives. And so what he says is that they were baptized into Moses' leadership, much like we would be baptized into Christ's leadership, through the cloud and in the sea. And he says that all ate the same spiritual food. They were all provided for by God. Most people who grew up in Sunday school know about a thing called manna. And they all drank the same spiritual food drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. If you don't know the story, then what happens is is they're thirsty, they're complaining about needing drink, and basically God says, hey, there's a rock, hit it, and water's going to flow out of it, and you're like, God, that's stupid. That's crazy. And then they do it, and it works because that's how God works. And And so this miraculous provision in the desert where water is coming out of a rock and Paul, again, kind of goes back into our context for Christians and says, remember that we have that same provision. We have a our rock, and our rock is Christ. And he is also saying that Christ, the pre-existent, pre-incarnate Christ, was there in the Exodus story, was there in the Exodus event. That the same Christ that provides for us was there for them. So he uses this word all. Five times, they all had experienced God's provision. They all could have and did consider themselves the people of God. But, or as Paul says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness this word, word overthrown, it's kind of like overtaken or like it's, it's battle imagery. And the image is pretty graphic, but it's, it's, it's the image of a people, of an army being mowed down in a field. And so it, it, he was not pleased with most of them because they were overthrown in the wilderness. So if you would imagine with me for a second, and I, and, and I don't want to, to cause any kind of, uh, of, of anxiety or uh, an unnecessary anxiety or any kind of unnecessary doubt in here for anybody who's kind of on the fence here about this whole Jesus thing, but, but it is necessary for us um, to, to, to imagine for a second what it would be like to be a Hebrew at this time and knowing that you are one of God's people and then basically finding out the hard way that he is not actually pleased with you. That you would presume that God is on your side. And what you find out is that you were not on God's. Why do we need to talk about this? Why does Paul bring up this story of the Israelites', the Israelites unfaithfulness? Why? Next section, starting in verse 6. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So what he's saying is, let's learn what not to do from these folks. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did as were de- and, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come." So we're learning what not to do, and so we're going to kind of outline their uh, specific mistakes here. And one of the things that um, he says is he goes idolatry, and then he goes sexual immorality, then he goes uh, into a few other things. And, And this idolatry thing, I'm going to interpret this passage in this way. This idolatry thing is kind of a heading. Now they are Guilty of specific like particular idolatry. I mean everybody knows that right after the exodus event right after they come out of Captivity in Egypt by God's hand. They just build a golden calf and start worshiping it Right, so we know that they actually do like physical idolatry But what we also know is that God's covenant with them is that I will be your God and you will be my people and so for them to break that covenant in any way It's like a marriage for them to be unfaithful in any way is idolatry. And we're going to to see why in a second. And so he says they're idolaters, and they're idolaters in these three specific ways. Sexual immorality, putting God to the test, which is like pushing uh God's boundaries. Some of you who have kids, you, you know what that feels like. And complaining. Sexual immorality, putting God to the test, and complaining. Sexual immorality would be idolizing your own pleasure your own body, your own desires. In that moment, and most of the time it's in a moment, in that moment you decide that your pleasure is better for you, is more satisfying to you, is more important to you than God. Or pushing the boundaries with God, which is idolizing your own plans. It's making God in your own image. It's assuming that God is on your side without concerning yourself with whether or not I am am on his side or complaining which it, doesn't it seem weird that complaining is in this list you got sexual immorality you got putting God to the test and then you got complaining if you would like to do like a top five sins I don't think I would put these together but he says complaining nonetheless and here's what complaining is and I think it might actually be the worst one all sins are equal but I think this might actually be the first one He says, complaining is seeking satisfaction in something other than God. Or rather, I should say, complaining is the result of seeking satisfaction in something other than God. Because what happens is you don't get satisfied, and then you complain. It's a test for idolatry. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is a story of God being faithful to a bunch of complainers. They pulled out of Egypt and they're free, they're out of 400 years of slavery, and they're like, man, the food was better back then, and we didn't even have to pay for it. Like, what? You were a slave. Who cares if you could pay for food or not? Like, you were a slave. Sexual immorality, pushing the boundaries, and complaining. Here's the big point. Though they experienced God's privilege and provision, and though they thought they were God's people, they ultimately experienced God's wrath. If you were to go back into uh, the Old Testament, into Exodus, into Deuteronomy, into Numbers, you would see the stories that he's specifically referencing here. And so I don't have time to go through all of them, but these are things that actually happened. He's not making some sermon illustration up. These are things that actually happened where people did these things, were disobedient, they were unfaithful, they were idolaters, and they experienced death because of it. And these are people who were expecting to have a good and prosperous life because God was on their side. And what they found was death because they were not on his. But before we look at them, the Israelites in the Old Testament, and think that they were dumb, because we always do that, don't we? We always read the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are actually written, a lot of times the stories, are sometimes even humorously, to make some of the people God's people. So like the Israelites and the disciples, uh, for sure, in the Gospels, um, sometimes it's written so that we actually realize how dumb they are, right? Because it's trying to teach us a lesson, and it's got to make it really obvious because we're dumb too, Right? So before we look at them uh, as dumb and think that that, that we might uh, never make that mistake, we must look at how easy idolatry is for us as well. Every every spring break, uh, we take college students and a few other folks to. Um, Spain. We, if you don't know, we have a partnership. This church has a partnership with a church in Denia, Spain, uh, where we are planting uh, churches. It's five churches in five years. We're planting churches in the areas around Denia, um, uh, and, and, and we're working with them to do that. And so every spring break, we take college students, and we visit these church plants, which they call Casas de Esperanzas, which is uh, houses of hope. And, uh, and, and what these are right now is they are church, uh, house churches, If you've ever seen a a college, our our college ministry does community groups. These are what they are. And so they're just a bunch of people, um, probably a lot of them, like some Christians, some non-Christians, all meeting in the same uh, house, eating food together, maybe singing some songs, doing a Bible study. And all of them have leaders who have stepped up and are leading them. And the goal is that these would become uh, churches. And so we would uh, go to these places in every spring break and, and, and we, we ask them questions because we go there uh, to learn. We call it a mission trip, but we really don't go to help them. We go to learn from them and then come back and do what they're doing um, in Waco or take what we learned um, in Spain and take it back to Waco. And so we, we, we ask them questions about what it's like to be a Christian in Spain, um, what it's like to, to follow Jesus in Spain. And, 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 and I, 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 the answer that we often get Um is an explanation of, of Spanish culture and really like European culture nowadays uh, is, is that because Europe and because Spain specifically is what is left or, or is the land where Christendom was, almost everybody is Catholic. Almost everybody would say that they belong to the Roman Catholic Church. Almost everybody would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But what they say to us these, these Christians that we work with um, in Spain is like, yeah, but none of them, hardly any of them are actually following Jesus. They're very nominal. They're very cultural. They call themselves Christian because their parents were Christian and their parents' parents were Christian. They call themselves Christians because they're European. And then they'll ask, inevitably, what is, what's it like in Waco? And we have to be honest and say it's the same, but Baptists—that we actually here have a, a a Christian culture. In fact, I often call Waco to my college ministry friends around the country. Waco is like the Vatican of evangelical thought, and so like we, this is the place where all of the conservative Christians live for for some reason. And so we um, we uh, uh, we we talk about that we have this cultural Christian. Uh, uh, culture. We have this Christian culture that drives everything that happens in Waco. And yes, it is going away. Some of you who have lived in Waco for a long time um, know that it's not as Christian here as it was 30 years ago. But, um, but it's still very Christian compared to the re- a lot of the world. And so um, the danger that we have here, and specifically with, with, with me and our college students and when we're reaching folks at Baylor University, the danger that we run into is that we actually don't have to share the gospel with many people like, they know the facts of Christianity. They know the story. They've heard of Jesus. But we actually have to show them what it's like to actually follow him. In other words, we lead a lot of Christians to Christ. And that, that's the problem that we have here in Waco is that sometimes our religious tradition and our religious culture actually will create a complacency, actually will create a, 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 a state of mind where we think that God is on our side, but we don't realize that we are not on His. Unfortunately, in explaining faithful living to college students I have found in the past four years here, I have numerous times had to distinguish between being a Christian and actually following Jesus. Because our churches are filled with people who are good church folks but aren't following Jesus with their lives. Many people who are great Baptists, but aren't disciples. We have many evangelicals, but few actual Christians. And so what Paul is saying to us is that we need to seriously look at ourselves and make sure that we are not idolizing our religious tradition over God himself or that we are not leaning on our religious culture to count as actually being faithful to God. We need to seriously look at ourselves. And here's what I would say. If you are in here, and you are thinking, yeah, they need to seriously look at themselves, I'm talking to you. Here's a quick test. Because complaining, remember, is a good test for Idolatry, because it means that you are trying to seek satisfaction in something that is not God, and because it's not God, it's not ultimately satisfying, therefore you complain. Here's a good test. If you find yourself constantly complaining about everything, you're probably idolizing some sort of preference in your life. If you find yourself complaining about your wife or your husband, you've probably put too much on them to satisfy you. If you find yourself complaining about your church and the things that happen here, you probably idolize your preferences and how you would like things to go here more than you do actually following Jesus. So how do we, the Christians, learn from their mistakes? This is where Paul gives us good news. Paul says in verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Meaning, if you think you're good, watch out. If you're presumed, if you're overconfident, watch out. Be alert, like Jesus said to the disciples. Verse 13: No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And here's the big thing: God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Number one, watch out. That's how we beat it, watch out. Learn from the past mistakes. Learn from the ancient Israelites. Learn from the disciples in the gospels. Learn from the Corinthian church. They had all kinds of problems. Learn from those people, but also learn from past mistakes of the people you know. You, we all have parents that made mistakes that we tried to learn some, and then we, we always end up like actually doing the exact same thing. We're like, dang, I'm exactly like my dad. But, but, you, uh, but we, we learn from our parents, learn from um, folks in this church. And this is a this is thing that we do as family, okay? So this is not like uh, we judge each other, like the, the older generation or like the younger generation is looking at the older generation, looking at all your mistakes, and we're all angry with you, and we're like, we're never gonna be like them. That's not what I'm saying. but. As the older generation in our church, maybe it's a responsibility as the parent, as the grandfather, as the the patriarch or the matriarch of our church family to show the younger generation what it's like to make mistakes and then correct them and to apologize. Allow us to learn from each other. Number one, watch out. Number two, count on God's faithfulness not your own. The thing I love, the thing I love about Jesus in relationship to the Old Testament, and so if you're in here and if you're a Christian or if you're a church person and you're like, I've always wondered why the Old Testament? This is why, right? This is how we read the Old Testament. This is what it's for. We read the Gospels, especially Matthew, because Matthew was a Jew, and he knew the Old Testament really well. And so uh, in Matthew, if you read about Jesus, he'll oftentimes be referring back to the Old Testament, and Matthew will refer back to the Old Testament in relation uh, to Jesus. And one of my favorite parts in Matthew is Jesus' temptation. Because Jesus' temptation, if you're reading well, and if you're paying attention, and you know your Old Testament, Jesus' temptation is an exact reverse of the Israelite story in the Old Testament the Israelites complain about bread and Jesus when tempted with bread says man does not live on bread alone I don't get my satisfaction from bread I get my satisfaction from God the Israelites put God to the test and Jesus says I'm not gonna put God to the test Satan says hey you jump off this big tower and then God will save you He's like, I'm not going to put God to the test. Because Jesus jumping off that big tower is Jesus presuming, and with Jesus correctly, but still presuming that if he jumps off this uh, thing, that God will react to his plan and be on his side. And Jesus' concern is not whether God is on his side. Jesus' concern is whether he's on God's side. So he's not going to put God to the test. And Satan says, hey, seek your own will, seek your own pleasure. This is what the Israelites did. Seek your own pleasure, seek your own will. And Jesus did the opposite. Jesus laid down his life for the sake of others and for the glory of God. Now, this is the cool thing about, about this, this, this message in, in, in 1 Corinthians here. Is that Paul says, yes, faithfulness is of utmost importance. And idolatry is really, really, really easy. So watch out. But remember that we serve a faithful God. The story of the Bible is a faithful God being faithful to unfaithful people the entire time, all the way through, until he comes back. And it may seem obvious, but the way to avoid idolatry is to look at Jesus. So I'd ask you this morning, if you are in here and you find yourself struggling with maybe some of the specific things that they talked about with the Israelites, if you find yourself struggling with, with putting your own physical desires, physical pleasures above following Jesus, this is not a place where you will be judged. This is not a place where if you were to tell somebody that they would look down on you and think that you were dumb, this is a place where we all understand that idolatry is easy because we've committed it. If you are constantly putting God to the test, and Christians, this is a really big one for us, if you are constantly trying to make God in your own image and you are constantly trying to make God get on board with your plans, if you're constantly putting him in a box that makes you comfortable, let's talk about it. This is a place where we all do that. That's why we're here, because we're trying to get better. If you're, a pl- if you're somebody who has just no joy, all joy has left the room for you, and all you can s- find or things to complain about. You're just constantly dissatisfied. That's something to tell somebody else about because that doesn't have to be the case. Your circumstances might not change, I can promise you that, but what also won't change is God's faithfulness to satisfy you. And so one more time I wanna say it may seem obvious But the way to avoid idolatry is to look at Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a God who is faithful. And It's crazy to me that, that, that history is orchestrated in such a way and stories have been told in such a way that we are able to look back and, as Tom said, relate to the psalmist or relate to the Israelite or relate to the sinner or relate to the Pharisee. God, I pray for everybody in this room, including myself, who often presumes that you are on our side. And I pray that you would help us to remove our concern about that and replace it with our concern that we are on yours. Father, most of all, I pray that you would show us Jesus. That this morning we would not leave this room without experiencing your provision in your Son, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, in which we find life. God, I thank you again for who you are. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.